Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh, I'm walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down Twanfield, and we'll see them. What you're doing down here, you Johnny man. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast with Owen McDevitt and Ken Early back from LA. How are you, Ken? Good, Owen. How are you? Nice drum, good. Nice trip. A little tired, actually. I feel kind of a bit tired of my bones. You know, like I, I want really want to be asleep now. Mm. I feel. Sympathy for our great captain. <laughs> so have we have we praised Robbie Keane a bit too much over the last <laughs> Possibly, yeah. couple of days? Let's talk about the LA fans because I was quite struck watching it on TV. Uh, the atmosphere looked really good. I don't know why the atmosphere wouldn't look really good, but was it? Yeah, it was. Uh, thanks, Owen, to the efforts of the Angel City Brigade. Ooh, they the, sound the feared LA firm, <laughs> uh, the Angel City Brigade, who uh, Robbie Keane doesn't care about it at all. <laughs> Uh, yesterday, I because t- I talked to a couple of the guys from this. I mean, what a weird crew they were. Um, what way? Well, there was just a, it was just a, a weird uh, bunch of people. Um, I mean, there was one guy who was he was a uh, you know white guy in his sort of mid twenties who um, who explained to me extremely drunkenly that he was a uh, by day a sort of public service worker <laughs> by night. One of California's wealthiest uh, marijuana barons. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying, hang on, but how can you, you know, what's the, what's the story? You know, he's like, well, yeah, I mean, we grow all this, you know, we grow like huge amounts. I mean, he was unbelievably drunk, you know. I said, uh, where do you, where do you grow all this stuff? You know, he, he was like, it's really, it's really frustrating to me uh, that, you know, he can't spend all his money because if he starts going around showing all this money, the police are going to be onto him, right? Mm. But I said, well, but what about, I mean, do, do they not have, I mean, when you're growing this, I mean, by the sounds of it, a huge volume of, of crop, uh, do, do they not have the helicopters to sort of go around looking for heat signatures of just this sort of little farm? Apparently, it's illegal. You can't do that. What, you can't send the helicopters? No, you can't. You, you can't, apparently, according to, uh, they seem quite, quite certain about that. I said, but they're, they're going to legalize all this in California anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be legalized, if not next year, the year after. Um, that's going to 
that's going to screw your profit margin. He said, no, uh, I'll, it'll just mean I'll become a legitimate farmer. You know, I can, I, he become like, uh, you know, a big, uh, he'll own a big plantation. And uh, finally, he'll be able to come out in the open. You know, it's, 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 it's sad, really, that at the moment, it's a kind of a twilight sort of thing. So he was typical of the fans there? He, he also kept telling me stories about police brutality towards him. <laughs> Which uh, hold on, in, in his role as a, as a public soccer No, in his, role, in his role as a, as a, soccer, a soccer fan, right. um, there were, which I, I've, I've found a little bit unconvincing, to be honest, but, you know, uh, that may, may have been the case. I mean, there was, there was a bunch of people. I mean, they were all very nice, although they were among the worst behaved fans I've ever seen. In what way? They, they kept fighting each other. It was like, it was just fights breaking out all the time. Within, within their own supporters or fighting the New fighting, England? Fighting. No, not, no, there was no New England people there. I mean, there was... Um, they looked the, like there were some on TV. Oh, no, at the, at the match there yeah. were. Yeah, no, this wasn't at the match. Oh, sorry. Um, no, they, but they were full of information about the group. You know, I mean, they've been going, I think, since... The, was it 2008? So not that long. But, like, the LA Riot Squad are, like, kind of the rival ultras. But they're like, no, nah, those, those are kind of old guys. You know, the LA Riot Squad is kind of like the dad rock ultra equivalent. They, they just kind of stand there grumbling. You know, with the Ramsfeld and grumbling about the performances of the players, whereas the Angel City Brigade are uh, are leading the the chance all the way through. You know, in fairness, it was it was very good. They kept it up all the way through the game. They were talking about the rivalries they have. You know, with the San Jose, those little Silicon Valley guys. They don't like those guys. But it was interesting talking to like the leader of them was this kind of he was a very nice guy, kind of a strong looking bearded man. Well, they always, I mean, all great leaders are bearded. That's, that's well known. Uh, he he was, you know, kind of a barrel-chested uh, guy. He was explaining um, that. Look, uh, well, you know, I was kind of asking, what's the, what's the appeal of this? You know, he he was saying every game. Say the United States team plays a lot of games there at the stadium in L.A. Every game is an away game. It doesn't matter who they're playing. Um, the local community of Mexicans or Salvadorians or whatever it is, because it's, it's it's invariably against the Concacaf. Uh, rival, uh, they come and fill the stadium, uh, and are screaming, you know, puta at the American national team, uh, who you know are sort of, you know, have to shield their heads from the rain of missiles from the stands. You know, this is their home match, and uh, he was saying, you know, it's a pity because he, this guy himself was of Mexican Salvadorian descent. There, there were his parents, but he was saying that he supports the U.S. national team. You know, he's saying like a lot of Mexicans, they they'll still support a club in Mexico. Or they, you know, they support the Mexican national team, um, and he's like, "No, we've got to, you know, we've got to support our own team. We've got to support." It, he kind of reminded me a bit of an Aircom League fan in a way, mm-hmm. you know. The sort of it's essentially the same kind of argument. We've got to support our own thing, you know. Why? I mean, I, I actually see. I mean, the, the the big difference between California and here is that California is one third of the global way, and eight hours separated by eight hours in time. Being a Premier League fan in California is actually really inconvenient. You know what I mean? It's like the the Monday night game. You know, I I kind of realized, oh, how many United are playing? I wonder what the score is. You know, they were playing against Southampton. It was just after kind of midday where I was. But like the games that are on at three o'clock, obviously, you know. Yeah. You, you know, it's it's. Oh, but that creates a, a sort of subculture of its own, I guess. A, a we, weird subculture of people who get up at five thirty in the morning the on Saturday. Five, so, yeah. Yeah, come on, we're talking to Alan McLaughlin today about his autobiography, which has come out this year. Uh, a lot of good stuff in there, Ken. Uh yeah, it's a good book actually. Um, some yeah, some good. Uh, it's a well written book. Um, Alan McLaughlin and he's done it with a guy called Bryce Evans. Yeah, and uh, I mean, a different shade of green is the title, which um, suggests one of the main themes of it, which is the 
the whole issue of Alan McLaughlin as a as an English board, a Manchester Irish player playing for the Republic of Ireland. And there's quite a lot in the book about that, about the different um the different strains of Irishness that represent. I always, I always find that quite, uh, really interesting. And other people, you know, Kevin Kilban is uh, another guy who's talked a bit about that. that uh, there, I mean, we've had so many non-Irish-born players, and mm-hmm. I guess some of them feel a little bit more Irish than others. And McLaughlin certainly uh, feels very Irish. And yeah, it take, takes umbrage at suggestions that he's in any way less Irish because he wasn't born in wherever. McLaughlin has kind of grew up in that almost now vanished uh, Irish world in England. You know, the sort of uh, the the local. Irish pub and the kind of clubs and all this kind of stuff, mm. um, which I which I honestly don't know if it even really exists anymore. You know, now, I think maybe because people can just Facebook each other and say, "Oh, let's meet at X place," and they don't always have to go to the same place to meet <laughs> the Irish people that night. You know what I mean? If they want to meet Irish people, they don't all have to go to the same point in space. They just organise it uh, differently. So maybe the culture has died a little bit. We're looking forward to that chat later on. Time now for Ken Early's report on sport. Um, so I guess we'll talk a bit about the Champions League going. Uh, Manchester City, I thought, played brilliantly last night. It's interesting because they're missing Aguero, who's you know their inspirational uh, goal scorer. They're missing Yaya Toure, who's you know their most impressive midfielder, and then company, their leader of their defence. And it's the best team performance I think I've, they've given all season. You know, I mean, it was better than the performance against Bayern. Against Bayern, they were it was ten men. You know, Aguero was brilliant. They stole the game. They sh- they should have lost, you know, to ten men at home, and because of Aguero, they they managed to win. Whereas last night against Roma, okay, Roma are not a not a patch on Bayern. We saw what happened when Bayern went to Rome. Um, it's pretty ugly, but uh, it was a, it was just a really there was a sense of kind of unity about Manchester City, a sense of real collective purpose. I don't know if maybe sometimes you lose your best players and the team can actually gel together a bit more. Um, certainly, I don't think that Aguero uh, works as hard off the ball um, as well. You know what, what City had last night. Um, there was like Jeko, Jovetic. I mean, there was. But I mean, the, what City were doing were making it really difficult for Roma by going after them in their own half. I mean, Roma had the ball at the back, and City would go would push straight up onto them and say, oh, "Let's see if you can keep the ball now." Mm. Roma couldn't do it. Um, maybe against a against a team like Bayern, who are better at passing the ball around, that approach might lead to you conceding a lot of goals you know, as Manchester City. Um, but uh, it worked perfectly. I mean, it would have been quite easy and quite natural for them to sort of sit back and be really cautious and look to pick pick the game off. But instead, they end up winning two 0 because Zabaleta sprints forty yards forward into the box to tackle a ball into the net. You know, there was a real kind of steal about them. I thought, which I, which hasn't really been evident in a lot of their performances. I mean, usually they're just winning their games on on superior ability. You know, it's almost strolling through the games. Um, and it wasn't like that last night. Well, Dimichaelis as well, I have to say, um, was really good. You know, for a guy that gets slagged off a lot. There was one moment, particularly in the second half, a tackle on a guy who could have shot sort of at the near post there. And Dimichaelis just threw himself in front of it. Ray Hedden, I thought, was remarkably critical of him. Ray Hedden was saying, well, I don't know what part of his body Dimichaelis has gotten that. As though because it wasn't like a classically pure uh, clearance, you know, it wasn't. I mean, it was great. It was 
I thought, great defensive play. I mean, he's a guy who's making sure nothing's getting past him. It doesn't matter what part of his body it hits. Well, we're going to talk more about Man City with Miguel Delaney shortly, so I do want to push you on to Liverpool because I was fascinated by this game, right? Mm. Uh, well, first, <laughs> it's incredible how much better Basel were in the first half, uh, just technically as well as anything else. They were just so sharp, and Liverpool, I mean, everyone's, uh, most people have seen the game and they'll have seen how poor Liverpool were. Then Basel starts sitting back. Steven Gerrard, who'd been awful, and I thought awful right even in the early parts of the second half when Liverpool were improving slightly, he just looked as he's looked for a lot of the season, the guy who's who's a little bit shot. Then, with, but you know, half an hour to go, you're thinking, well, you know, somebody has to take this over. So it's not going to be Gerrard. So who's it going to be? And then yeah. it turns out, no, it's Gerrard. Gerrard wills himself to get back involved. Not just the free. I thought he really uh, impressed himself upon the game. He probably those he can still put those bursts in for twenty minute periods, and nobody else did anything. Particular, I saw them being praised in some quarters for the defiance they showed in the last twenty minutes. And if you're not showing that, there's something no. gone. Haywire. Sure, sure. All that was happening was Basel getting nervous. Yeah, you know, Basel are thinking, "Wow, this is going to be big." You know, we're, going to, we're about to win at Anfield. This is great, and uh, and they were kind of uh, they started to wasn't as though they were going out there. I imagine seventy five percent confident of quality. You know, I'd say they were backing themselves. They thought they had a had a good shot. Um, but here they are. They're about to not only qualify but win, and uh, it's looking it's looking really good for them. And then they, you know, Liverpool got the goal from the free kick, which was a brilliant free kick. Um, I didn't see any other way they were going to score. You know, they needed they needed another free kick or a penalty. You know, it wasn't going to happen. Um, I mean, I, I was just puzzled by the whole the the approach. Brendan, I mean, the, his approach throughout the whole Champions League has been a little bit puzzling. It doesn't really seem to know what his what his best team is. Um, Seems to have regressed, or, or I mean, he was talking last week about his uh, how he he became democratic and educational, but now he had to become a bit more autocratic again because it seemed like some people weren't getting the message. So he had to throw his duster around the classroom a little bit, just to sort of uh, you know get people focus the attention of the students who were who were turning into a bit of a rabble. Right? This is what this is uh, this is pretty much what he was saying. Um, but he didn't. He seemed to have forgotten elements of his own curriculum. I mean, he was up against uh, Paolo, uh, Paolo Sosa, who's you know his predecessor at Swansea City, the Basel manager, uh, was there at Swansea. You know, carrying on the work of Roberto Martinez. Remember, Rogers took over at Swansea, and it had been managed by Martinez and Sosa. They already had a kind of established identity of a, of a team that passed the ball around a lot, played the ball out from the back, and so on. And Rogers kind of fitted seamlessly into that, and that was the philosophy that he took with him. To Liverpool. I mean, apparently he had quite a different philosophy when he was at Reading, when he'd more recently been a Chelsea coach under Jose Mourinho. It was very much Mourinho ball was the was the game plan there. But this, you know, he he obviously evolved towards a possession style at Swansea. Now I assume that was kind of Rogers's idea about football. That's how we play. Um, I mean, it was obviously slightly different last season because there were some exceptional players in the team who kind of maybe took over and just it was just happening, you know. But I would have thought, in the absence of you know Suarez and Sturridge or whatever, at least we'd see a return to what Rogers really believes in. He, if he, if you know, if things are falling apart a little bit, then go back to your first principles. What are the first principles? I don't see any evidence of principles. I mean, it was just sort of stick a load of stodgy midfielders in the team and hopefully won't let in a goal. That's what it seemed to me to be. You've got Philip Coutinho, who's the best player in the team in terms of getting on the ball and making things happen, sitting on the bench. Why is he? Why are you leaving him out? You need him, you know. You've got Moreno, who has made some big defensive mistakes, no doubt about that. Presumably sitting on the bench for that reason, even though 
as an attacking player, he's a much better, much better prospect than Jose Enrique, who, in fairness, isn't isn't a man who's not made the odd mistake from time to time. So there was just wasn't any kind of clear idea there. It strikes me maybe as a reminds me of a, a parent Ken who's struggling a little bit with their kid. I mean, they're reading all the parenting books. Yeah, they've read one particularly good one, and it gives them a very clear way of how to parent. And suddenly, there's a day or two. But this, this kid's. Young young Johnny here is reacting pretty well to this new style of parenting. Yeah. Then Johnny throws an absolute tantrum the next day, and, he, and the parent says, "Better go back to that book, see what else is in there, see or maybe get another book." What to do? Maybe get another book, which then conflicts with the first. Exactly. Book. Yeah. But then you go with that one for a little while. No. But it, there's something a little bit. Yeah. There's something a little bit grim about not going down his way if he is going to go down. If his way is. What is his way? Uh, Pep. Um. Yeah. Pep. Uh, uh, or do you, want, do you want to talk about that ridiculous? No, I wanted to mention the, the I want to mention the Barcelona game. Um, okay. This was quite interesting. I thought uh, Suarez, Neymar, and Messi all scoring goals of various quali- varying quality. Neymar's one probably the best total individual effort. Uh, the Suarez one was quite funny. Um, he managed to he was battling away against centre half. Managed to lay the ball off, fall over, and then burst into the box and knock in the rebound, which Lionel Messi. Would have knocked in anyway. Messi's kind of standing, looking at him, going, "You've just uh, cost no, me. You just cost, cost me a goal I in thought, my annual race Messi, against Ronaldo." I thought Messi very, very self-consciously raised his hands as if to say, "Oh, oh Suarez, you're in." Oh, sorry, you're in. You're in my space there, Suarez. But I suppose probably fine. Fair enough. You, you know, you need a goal at this stage. Uh, now, in fairness, Messi. It's unfair to say Messi would have scored that anyway. Although I mean, he clearly would have scored the, yeah. the tap in. Um, but Suarez had helped him create the chance with his initial muscling of the defender, something which was going on a lot and which led to him kicking Thiago Silva, if you saw this incident. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think that was a big deal at all. Uh, I mean, is it, this is what happens when a player is standing up for himself. I mean, he's taking a risk if the referee sees it. Even players have been known to be sent off for that sort of thing. It was brought up on the RT panel last night. Uh, Darren only brought it up. Uh, I don't think the guys thought it was in the context of you know serious. we've seen him bite people and you know you know be investigated for racism. Yeah, and now this. But, but, <laughs> I think Brady really in the same the, category. The conversation went around for a minute, and then Brady eventually just laughed it off and said it's he didn't bite anyone. It was it was a joke, but actually at the point was probably quite a pertinent one. It was it was a very standard. I mean, it's not ideal when you flick out of somebody, but it was a fairly standard thing that happens in the game quite regularly. Thiago Silva is going through the back of Suarez every time the ball is near them. You know, so he's standing up for himself. I mean, it means that you have to be you have to be a brave defender if you're going to tangle with him because he might, you never know what he might do. Mm-hmm. And that's something I suppose that he that he does. But I didn't. I must say, I didn't think it was a bad thing. I thought he played quite well actually. Um, there was uh, David Luiz. I mean, the first goal was you know sort of. Uh, put down as a mistake by David Luiz. It was a, a messy tap-in from Suarez Cross. But I think the problem was that he just didn't... He just assumed that ball wasn't going to get crossed. Mm. You know, it was one of those, oh, he's actually made something out of out of nothing in a way. Um, Guardiola, um, we don't have much to say about his his team, who, who steamrolled uh, Cheska Moscow um, and finished the group with five wins out of six. Um, just to mention that apparently the uh, Australian coach of the Japan rugby team has been uh, consulting with uh, Pep Guardiola as to how to uh, win the Rugby World Cup. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he says, uh, I had a really good meeting with Guardiola. I think we can improve greatly with adjustments in the way we train. He's the best soccer coach in the world, and you always want to learn from the best. Rugby and soccer are very similar in that you always want to move the ball into space. 
Bayern Munich and his previous team, Barcelona, played the most fantastic passing game you've ever seen. The principles are exactly the same. The best soccer teams vary their depth and formation in order to make the most of the space. So when you get a chance to learn from the best, it's a fantastic opportunity. Guardiola actually says a few things in that book, um, the Pep book by Marty Perrineau. Uh, what's it called again? Her Pep is the title in German. I could... Well, Her Pep will do. I mean, it's... it's Marty Perrineau, the Pep Guardiola book yep. recently. Yeah, recently. I can't believe I've forgotten the It's title. okay, you... Um, he, but he, he says a lot of quite general things. I mean, you know, he's got a water, a water polo guy on his staff, you know, um, he, he, he draws principles from other team sports. He says at one point, the secret of success in all team sports, and you kind of, your ears prick up and you're like, wow, what's he, what's he about to say? Is to overload one side so that to get the opponent to tilt their defense that side, then you score on the other side. That's the secret of success in all team sports, according to Pep Guardiola. Apart from, you know, obvious exceptions, tug of war, you know, <laughs> uh, whatever. But overload one side, get the def- uh, opposition to tilt their defense and then score on the other side. Oh, yes. Next time next time you're watching Bayern Munich, wait to see how many times they try and do this uh, do this thing. It's called Pep Confidential, Ken. Pep Confidential. Um, we're finish the report on sport with that info. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here, Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen him. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Alan McLaughlin still to come on the show. Right now, we're joined from Rome by Miguel Delady. Uh, Miguel, Manuel Pellegrini said after the game that he doesn't think City are getting enough credit. Is it time to give them a little bit more? Um, yeah, I think to a certain degree you have to. Um, I suppose ultimately any discussion about City in Europe and their general issues are, are always kind of counted by the fact that they basically have so much money. But that doesn't mean a team can't grow. Or, or I mean, ultimately, no matter how much you have, you still going to have to grow as a unit. I think that that's what's happened. I mean, David Silva, the mix on afterwards, came out with it was an interesting enough comment. I mean, he said it's an important feat in the, the, the cycle of this team. Um, and I think because if you, if you look at the way City have grown over the past few years and the context of this game, like last season, City basically won the title when because of their best form. You know, when they were on it, they're pretty much better than anyone else. But when they weren't on it, I thought their, their level sank so much lower. Certainly, they didn't seem to have the kind of competitiveness of, say, Chelsea. And I think it's telling that they lost all their big European games and they lost three of the top four games. So it was like when it was on the line, it was always as if they kind of, they, they, they didn't have that fight. I think, this was, which is why this was kind of such a critical game because after what had been a pretty miserable start to the season, they'd built up form again, they'd be real back in and they're kind of on a, on a wave again. Then you come to this with Aguero out, the entire spine of the team out, and a game against a tough Roma team who I think had only been beaten by uh, by Juventus and Bayern Munich at home under Rudy Garcia. And all this in the course of the competition that means most cities. I think had they gone out last night, even though circumstances might have made it quite difficult, had they gone out, it could have potentially disrupted this this kind of momentum they've built over the past few games. And I might have seen them return, especially given the injury to Aguero. Yet they didn't buckle. They showed a fair bit of fight. And I actually think this would be something that could propel their season. I mean, 
it, it was finally as if they, they, they showed that kind of that greater competitive ability to dig in that have maybe been missing under well, uh, well Miguel, I, I actually thought it was hugely impressive uh, City last night, especially when they were one nil up in the uh, in the second half. The way that they kept kind of coming after Roma, and um, they were pushing right up and saying, "Okay, Roma, are you going to be good enough to hang on to the ball here?" Are you? They, they were chasing for a second goal. It wasn't even though a draw actually would have put City through as well. They said, I, actually, we're completely the stronger team here, and we're, gonna, we're now going to demonstrate that over the next half an hour. Well, that was it. And I think it was interesting at that point they brought on Silva as well. I mean, no, you would have thought they might have brought him on to just keep possession. But I mean, we got Silva in the mix on afterwards. We asking, did, did Pellegrini ask you uh, just to excuse you? No, we went, we went to that second goal. We wanted, we wanted to kill it, set ourselves up. So, yeah, it, like in that sense, it was. Uh, I suppose uh, an application of their own force, especially given the distance they managed to be. It, it was um, Nasri's goal kind of fostered that belief that kind of they realised that we are pretty much a better side here. Now, in saying that, I think um, they, they got through a little bit of luck as well. I mean, Rome were brilliant for the first twenty minutes. Yeah, what Silva's kind of almost a sort. What's, Sorry, go on. what's Silva's uh, form like, uh, Miguel, in the mix? I think you've spoken to him a few times at this stage. I mean, do you get the sense that... I mean, there was a good shot of Silva, actually, when the Nasri goal was going in, he was just getting ready to come on, and they showed Silva sort of watching this and then uh, celebrating, and then just started tying his shoelaces again. Um, how, uh, how passionate do you think he is about, uh, about Manchester City? How excited is he to, to represent the Sheikh and the Academy and everything else that's great about Manchester City? <laughs> He's not a very... Um excitable man in general, actually. In fact, his, uh, his general um, mix zone or interview demeanor is very different from the before he... From the, although in, in saying that, like I interviewed him before the World Cup and uh, he's fond of a kind of a one-sentence answer. Now, we can't say the all good thing or the all good line, but uh, no, he, he, he doesn't seem so enthused. But then last night, actually, he was willing, to, I think like a lot of the City players, to be fair, which, which isn't always the case in these kind of European interests, so he's willing to stop for much longer, willing to kind of talk about it. And he, and he, and he did talk about his, his kind of Pride, how far they're going. I think there was like there was a Spanish journalist there as well who was typically asking about the Spanish club. Would he go back to Spain? And he, you know, that's not, that's not even a question right now. <laughs> I just imagine uh, every single time he has to talk to a Spanish journalist, it just it's like, so when are you gonna when are you gonna come back to start Spain? playing some real football again? Uh, I'm, I wonder, yeah, Miguel, just that, last that, that, that and that, that and Messi and Ronaldo actually. That's, that's it, the other question. Ever, oh, that, who's better, Messi or Ronaldo? Yeah, who's in the ball on the door? Yeah. You're actually that's kidding. You're that's kidding that's me. They that's asked Evan Silva that question. Yeah. <laughs> every, uh, every Spanish speaker that went through the mix zone last night was asked. That is unbelievable. Um, I wonder, just the last thing, Gallo, this, uh, the, the news here this week about Man City has all been about this academy that they've, this, that they've unveiled, this sort of head training headquarters, which has cost £200 million. Pounds. And it's it's like several orders of magnitude beyond what anyone has previously spent on an equivalent facility. What the hell are Manchester City doing? Why is it necessary to spend uh, this much? And does anyone have any idea what uh, what you actually get for for two hundred million? Well, I suppose ultimately, in the long term, you purchase legitimacy. I mean, I started thinking about this and all the discussion about um, when, when when City first came to prominence years ago, and like the, so many people are repulsed. By the idea of you kind know, of you know new money, new cover that someone just buying into top. But say twenty, thirty years down the line, when City's position are consolidated, sorry, when the City's position is consolidated, and they haven't just bought players, but they've bought this entire structure, we won't really be having that argument anymore. I mean, kind of you know, in that sense, clubs rise. Like I'm one, I suppose there's still very fair questions about you know 
the accumulation of wealth in the Premier League, how teams have been allowed to buy or how teams have been allowed to be bought and can be used basically kind of, you know, to, to a certain degree, propaganda machines for states and that. Um, it, 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 what, what, it, I suppose at least in this, they're kind of uh, building a club in the right way. It's, it's not just building a team, it, it, it's building an academy. And so, like, I mean, and, and this is what it's all about. It's, it's almost a bit of a kind of a land grab. Yep. Listen, Miguel, we'll, uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks a million. Spot on, lads. Is there a danger here, Ken, of maybe overpraising Manchester City a little bit? I mean, they got eight points from six games. Yeah, no, I mean, they, 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 they played badly in most of the Champions League, but if they played the way that they did last night, they would have a much better total of points. Um, I mean, it's just a question of why they don't seem to be able to do that every week. I mean, yeah, it's they, the difference they, between them yeah. and Chelsea, you know? Yeah. Um, they've, shown once or, they've shown glimpses of this in the Champions League. It wasn't their way to Bayern Munich. It, that was, again, that was a... It didn't really matter. That's a, kind of a fake game. I mean, Bayern, again, it was... Uh, well, actually, as, as it turned out, Man City could have topped the group if they'd scored another goal. But you know, you're you're playing against a team that's already through. It's kind of like, well, it's it's not it's not a real test. Last night was a real test. Last night they're playing away to the team that only needed to, I mean, a draw. Certain kinds of draw would put Roman through. Um, that was a real game with everything on the line, and they. They, they stood up. We've got another podcast already done and dusted today, US Murph, on the social activism of some NFL players there. Darren O'Neill and Richie Woodall were looking at Andy Lee's world title fight this weekend, which is well worth a listen if you're into that. And we also talked about the recent publicity around doping in rugby. Right now, we're delighted to be joined by the man who fired Ireland in the 1994 World Cup, Alan McLaughlin, who's brought out his autobiography this year, Different Shade of Green. Alan, it's great to talk to you in the show. Firstly, cheers for taking the time out. Can I ask you, why did you decide at this point of your life to bring out your story? Well, I was approached by uh, Bryce Evans, Dr. Bryce Evans from Liverpool Hope University and a huge Portsmouth fan. And uh, he, he contacted me, it was early May really, and uh, proposed the idea and, and said, would I be interested um, through a, a third party? And at first I, I wasn't too keen, if I'm honest. I didn't think there was probably anything there uh, worth telling, if I'm honest. But the more I thought about it, the, the more I met uh, with him and PJ Cunningham from Ballpoint Press, uh, I realised there probably was something. And maybe after what happened to me, uh, not more than a, a year and a half prior to us meeting, that maybe there was something there. And But I, I said, if I was going to do this, I'd certainly want to have a lot of ownership on, on how, the, how the book was written, what, what type of way I'd like the book to flow. And Bryce was very accommodating that, rather than me just you know, um, meeting and, and, and talking generally to him and let him get on with it. I certainly had a big input in, in how the book panned out. But uh, lots of it and the way he's interwoven the story is, uh, was really good and it was is a, is a great work on, on his behalf. But, yeah, I'm really proud of what we've done. I think it's an honest book. I think it's something that, you know, is, is for everyone to read, not just uh, sports fans and, and particular football fans. But I think it, it's a nice book and I'm proud of it. And, and you know, it was done as well because I think to leave a legacy for my girls. My, my girls, I've got two girls who are 20 and 23, and they know a little bit about Dad's career, but really they don't know too much about me as a person because my mum and dad still live in Manchester, and they don't see them that often, and really a lot of the stuff they're reading for the first time. So in the end, it was a challenge for me to put something down that was uh, decent and, and readable and uh, hopefully worth, worth buying from somebody along the way. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a, a lovely reason for uh, for writing the book. It's certainly part of the reason. How have your family and how have your daughters reacted to reading it? Yeah, they've been excited by it. Even my mum and dad didn't realise some of the uh, shenanigans and one or two of the issues that 
happened along the way because obviously you can't and you don't phone your mum and dad and tell them everything that goes on. So uh, they were they've they've been delighted with it obviously and obviously proud that I've managed to pen a book and they have something tangible to hold. And my girls again um, have come back to me and said they really enjoyed it. They were tearful at times because obviously there's parts of the book which they are familiar with of uh, obviously what happened to me and. Uh, a dear friend of ours so that 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 touched them but overall they're they're delighted that they have something tangible than themselves that they can pass on to their future hopefully children down the line i'm interested that your initial reaction when bryce evans approached you was uh, that you weren't sure something you wanted to do i i, I know when tony cascarino wrote his book with paul kimmage which was uh, one of the best of the genre i think he had a similar reaction kimmage said listen this is, you've got an amazing story here and Cascarino was thinking, ah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm not one of the the very best players of all time, so therefore, should I be writing a book? But actually, it's, like if people, maybe sometimes the celebrity element. Actually, if you're, you know, if you're uh, maybe a, a figure, the, the Brian O'Driscoll, Roy Keane, some of the books that come out this year, you have to be a bit more guarded. Whereas you could actually, you've got a real life to talk about as well as just the the football. Yeah, I mean, I think you don't. I mean, I've read you know lots of autobiographies, and they've all been from people that maybe I was aspiring to be uh, or people that have achieved so much in the game, particularly in football, which obviously the area I'm involved with. And um, again, you don't think you've quite hit the heights that that actually deserve it. Um, But the more I thought about it, uh, there was also a a message and a paragraph in there, which I wanted people to read. And, uh, you know, I thought if if, if it was significant to one person that could tell somebody else uh, that might help someone to notice the signs of kidney cancer, which, which obviously I did have, then it was also worth doing. And any of the interviews I had, uh, I did after uh, the diagnosis was clearly about, well, yes, I will do it, but I, please, I want to talk about if you you know, see blood in your urine, you have to do something quickly. Don't sit on your hands because it can pass uh, sometimes and, and it can go away and then you really are in a pickle then. So it was about getting that message out there as well. So a significant paragraph in the book. But more than anything, yeah, the more I actually spoke to Bryce, and he ended up really becoming my counsellor, I suppose is the best way to put it, because I hadn't spoken about what had happened to me uh, health-wise. And it was something where you put a brave a brave face on it for others, and particularly loved ones, and they need to see that dad and and their son and, and their husband is, is dealing with this and he's okay, and, and it alleviates the worry for them. But deep down inside, obviously, I had my own worries and issues and kept things certainly... Um, under wraps if that was the way but once I started to speak to Bryce it it was more like a therapeutic session at times and I did I admit I got quite upset at times reliving some of the uh, situations particularly with the uh, with the scare and then with Shelley our friend passing away and I suppose in the the day I found it pretty uh, therapeutic and it it sort of opened my eyes to maybe move on and and put it to one side and think right I need to move on Uh, I need to try and not forget about things but try and move look forward in a more positive way. And I thought it was a step to move forward was by writing the book. And uh, and also morbidly, if God forbid anything happens, at least something <laughs> was there for someone to realise what sort of person I was and what sort of life I've lived. It's more than two years, Alan, now since you had the diagnosis in, um, and you had the operation to have your kidney removed. I mean, how, how, how are things with that now? Yeah, I actually go on. Yeah, they've been fine. Thanks, Ken. Um, yeah, I've, uh, I, I've taken part. In, well, I am in a drugs trial for another just over 14 months I've got left in the drugs trial. I have another, I have my big scan uh, on this Friday. Um, I get the results then in mid-January, which is always a worrying time. Um, but I have to put it to one side. I have to have the scans are fairly regular and I'll have another scan uh, in six months' time. 
uh, and it's it's a more in-depth scan this one you have a, an x-ray after uh, in three months time so yeah it's it, it's an anxious time but as time goes by I'm, I'm hoping that 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 feeling of anxiousness uh, you know dissipates and you uh, and you learn to live with it but um i said the drugs trial for me is really important it's another thing i speak about in the book you know, i was approached to do it and I, I fitted into a genre of people of a certain age and um to to qualify for it and i decided to take the plunge really and it's been quite difficult. I'm still suffering now with certain ailments and, and side effects from the drug, but nothing that I can't live with. Uh, and, and like I say, if I can make a difference somewhere along the line uh, to someone with kidney cancer or uh, who's undergoing treatment at the minute, uh, then at least I'll have done something positive. So, but other than that, my health is, is, is fine in terms of I've had no secondary um, scares uh, and, and long may that continue. You said, Alan, that you've kept some of it to yourself, a little bit of it bottled up maybe until, until the writing of the book. Is that the sort of, you know, that typical Irish man gene that, w- that we probably all have where yeah. you don't want to show too much of what you're suffering? No, uh, pretty much like my old man, um, you know, very strong-willed, um, that you don't want to, you know, particularly when I played, and uh, certainly of a, a different generation of footballers I see now where, you know, rolling around 10 times, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was to let anyone know I was hurt, whether I was screaming inside internally that I was hurt. So there's that type of thing as well where, you know, but it's more protection of other people, but particularly the loved ones, your loved ones, you know, you need to protect them. And that's what I felt was the right thing to do. And I think most people uh, in the situation that I found myself in, that's my first thought when, the news was delivered and it was, you know, dr- dramatic news was, how am I going to tell my my wife? How am I going to tell my kids? How am I going to tell my mum and dad? How can I protect them and, and, and make them think I'm okay and, and, and we'll get through this? So that was really uh, the strong feelings. And that's what people in the situation really, there's, there's lots of great work with the NHS, in, particularly in England. And, you know, they do fantastic work, but there just isn't the resources to help people afterwards. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to, to pen my thoughts down uh, into a book and add in the elements of my footballing career, my early life, and uh, and, and, and join it up with my, my, my times with the Republic of Ireland squad. So it's married itself into, I hope, I hope uh, a nice read, I hope a funny read, I hope there's some, you know, I think uh, weepy bits in there if you're that way inclined, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, like I said, I've repeated myself. I'm really pleased with it. I've been really pleased with the reaction of the book as well. And, um, you know, uh, I've dealt with one or two things in there. And the one thing I haven't got in the book is, is an axe to grind with anyone. You know, I'm not moaning about an ex-manager uh, and a fallout with the club. Dave, Dave Whelan, maybe. <laughs> well, listen, that, I mean, I've said what I need to say in there. That, that yeah. again, was, you know, the one thing I would say is that, you know, with uh, at that point I was nearly 34, and uh, I wouldn't say I was accused of, of feigning injury, but it was it was half insinuated that maybe I wasn't as badly hurt as Footballers I. Footballers don't like being I accused was. of feigning feigning injuries. You know, I wanted to ask you, Alan, how, how you felt about the um, the support that you got. I mean, one of the things maybe it's a reflection also of the of sort of macho nature of football that people are always saying, "I don't have any friends in the game," yeah. or, or you know, you leave the club and then you never hear from any of the people you played with ever again. Uh, what was the support like from from your kind of? football community that you built up over the years did you do you get a sense that people when you know when you had the diagnosis were uh, were there for you yeah I, I you know i was in the main happy with it i know how difficult it can be particularly when you're not spoke to someone in a long time but with the modern uh, technology which is mobile phones and emails and stuff it, it's fairly easy to send something if you're not comfortable 
saying something over the phone, which doesn't come easy to lots of people. Uh, and I was surprised with the amount of people who did contact me. I was surprised with the amount of people who I'd had, you know, met briefly once or twice. For example, Liam Brady, who took the time to to contact me, which 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 was fantastic. And um, and there was other people who were what had classes, you know, good footballing friends who didn't make the effort. And but that's something you learn to live with. That's something that uh, is uh, it's probably not their fault, but they did understand that a text message or a uh, contact via email or any sort of contact with me at that particular time really raised my spirits. I think anyone in the situation who's not very well as well, whether it be through cancer or through any other ailment or illness, people can touch and help and, and lift your spirits by a simple text message or a simple card or a simple note or a simple email uh, and a simple little bit of effort really to find out where you are and how can you contact you, somebody. You mentioned around that time, Alan, that the FAI hadn't been in touch at all. Have they put that right since? Uh, no, uh, I, I believe someone from the FA said, oh, actually, we did f- contact the football club. No, they didn't. Um, and if they did, it certainly didn't reach me. Uh, it's quite interesting because they do send me one, you know, for, for, they send for games saying I can, if I'd like to come to a game, there's tickets available, which is very nice. And I think they do it to all the players. So they did have my home address. But apparently this, uh, this email that they sent to the football club got lost in email world. But uh, actually, they do have my address at home. Um, but uh, nothing, uh, nothing came uh, my way. Now, it was just an observation, you know, uh, nearly 10 years service. Uh, I just thought particularly maybe somebody might have, again, lifted my spirits. I suppose, though, if I'd have played for Man United or if I played for Liverpool or if I played for Spurs or someone like that, maybe it might have been slightly different. Um, but that's just me being cynical. Uh, uh, Alan, the, uh, the book is called A Different Shade of Green and you're... It's funny because one of the stories that, that kind of jumped out and that got a few headlines from it was that you had been angered in 2002 when Roy Keane brought his first book out. And in that book, it had been mentioned that yourself and Cascarino and these guys were, I think it was around the Windsor Park game, were looking around going, you kind of didn't understand the enormity of what was going on here. And you you said, hang on a second, I, I'm, I'm as Irish as they come. Um, you know, But uh, Keane, I think, then put, put you to rights in that and... I think maybe the ghostwriter might have might have gotten the blame for that one, but it does seem really important for you. And I guess this is there's maybe a, a, a view of Brit, like British-born footballers, or one for a better word, who come over that Irish fans don't necessarily distinguish between the guys like yourself who feel Irish and want to play, and then maybe some of the other guys who aren't as interested. Well, listen, um, the best way I can put it, and probably the easiest way to put it, is you know I could have been born in Ireland. Listen, I, I'm not Irish-born, so I'm obviously clearly not born in Ireland. I have a Mancunian accent. But I could have been born in Ireland, moved to Manchester as a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a four-year-old, still picked up that Mancunian accent, uh, still would have had that brogue and, and still would have spoke the same way. But that would have been okay then, would it? Because, because I was born in Ireland. I have parents who were Irish and both parents. My grandparents both lived uh, not more than um, 10 doors away from me. All my family are Irish. Everyone we mix with were Irish. So we did understand and I did understand the culture. I was born and brought up within it and, and I did have all the stories of going back to the black and tans and you know just because you're not born in Ireland doesn't make you less of an Irishman in terms of knowledge uh, in terms of uh, what it was like to live in Ireland as my mum and dad were through the 50s and the 60s uh, and have a perspective and then obviously my grandparents who uh, and my nan, uh, when she passed away, she was 98 and she lived through the 20s and the 30s. So I did have a perspective on and, and a feel for Ireland. And and to be maybe mentioned that I didn't quite maybe understand it, which I thought, whether it be Eamon, Dun- uh, which may, whether it be Eamon Dunphy, his perspective on it, 
uh, or whether it be Roy's. I, I took offence to that. Yes, just because I haven't got a, an Irish accent doesn't make, doesn't make me any less proud to have played for Ireland, doesn't make me any less uh, have the affinity I, I should have with Ireland uh, because my parents are extremely proud of me playing for Ireland. I was extremely proud to have Irish parents and of Irish heritage. So I took exception to some people just you know, expecting that we wouldn't understand or we, you know, I just find it bizarre, and particularly when no one asked me the question, and no one directly asked me that question, but someone took an assumption that that would be the way because I wasn't born in Ireland. So I took offence to it, yeah, and I still take I still take offence to it. I take offence to players who, who who can't be bothered turning up to play for Ireland. I, you know, I, I did turn up. I, I was selected in for nine and a half years, nearly ten. I turned up to every single squad. I was in every squad. I could have quite easily at times said, well, you know what, I fancy a holiday instead. I don't fancy going to that tournament. I don't fancy, um, you know, giving away three weeks uh, of my six-week break uh, to, to travel around the world to sit on the bench. Uh, I ain't going to do that. But I was proud of who I played for. I was proud of what I represented. And more than anything, I was proud to play for Ireland. And to someone to suggest in the book that maybe he didn't quite understand, yeah, I, I will take offence to it. I still do take offence to it. And uh, I, as you can hear within my voice, I get a little bit riled yeah. that people make assumptions based on guesswork. And that's all it was, guesswork. Yeah, I mean, and the, the chapter about the goal and, and that the story of that match is, is really interesting. It's really interesting read for anyone who's going to look at this book. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff in the book also about the, the, you know, the times in that Jack Charlton team, sort of early 90s uh, with Ireland and... It really is amazing that we managed to win any matches. Uh, so when you when you read some of the accounts here of what was actually going on, I mean, the 1994 World Cup is is an incredible uh, account that you give of what's happening. I mean, obviously, the, the players have to deal with a situation where they're surrounded 24-7 by hordes of drunken fans, uh, which was a lot of fun for the fans and, I suppose, something the players had to put up with. I didn't realise that Jack Charlton had a keg of Guinness in his room, though. Yeah, this was... Yeah, he, he did. And listen, we weren't up there routinely getting out of our brains um, every day. It was, it was, it was. We were there in the hotel for probably three weeks in that particular hotel, and it was just something where Jack Wood, you know, and Morris, and and it was really nice actually. You know, he, he'd spot you down the corridor and ask where you'd like a pint at the right, not obviously the day before a game or two days before the game. Listen, as much as we went out and we drunk and we drunk really hard. We didn't go out and drink two days before a game. That would, Jack, would Jack Charlton have a pint as well? I mean, if he was doing that with all the members of the squad, uh, he'd get going to get a little bit tired and emotional after a while. Who Jack would? Because would he, he, I mean, he'd just pour you a pint and sit there and watch you drink it, or would he also? No, no, no you know, no, he would just he'd just pour a pint and him and Morris would sit there, and, or he'd ask me uh, whether I'd want a pint. Uh, you know, obviously, if it was say say if we're playing Saturday and it, it was a Wednesday, would I like a pint? And it was he'd sit down and ask how I was, how the family was. And, you know, we wouldn't be sitting there and he wouldn't then wait for another one to come in and, and drunk 12 pints. It was just it was just an option to have there. And obviously, you know, Jack had uh, dignitaries and guests that come along. And like I said, the hotel was absolutely chock of block with, with fans. And yeah. it wasn't a place you could go downstairs and relax down and have maybe Jack, Jack have a drink in the bar in the evening time. It was just impossible. He would have been mobbed. So it was a place that, you know, the officials could meet as well and, and, and the staff. So it was done in the right way. Uh, but it was nice to speak to Morris and Jack sometimes like that, you know, to ask how family were, uh, because my wife, Debbie, was pregnant at the time with Megan and she couldn't come to America. So to sit down and have a chat for 25 minutes and talk about when he was at Leeds and talk about him winning the World Cup and, and go through things to forget about the situation we're in and speak to Morris about being at Man United. 
you know, it was a way of bonding with them people as well. So it, it was fine, and it wasn't done in a, uh, in a in a silly way. It was just done really to save convenience to go downstairs. And like I said, when when obviously the boys moved on then to Saipan and, and, and Roy quite rightly saying that we couldn't share a hotel with the fans because I kid you not, uh, there were four floors at the hotel and we had the top floor and the rest of the floors were filled with Irish fans. And God love them, they, they were drunk as skunks for several the weeks. Whole three weeks I was there and, and you couldn't come down even to walk through reception and they loved every minute of it. And uh, most of them blamed me for their credit card bill running up and <laughs> running up. But um, it was what it was. But it was a great time, and we had a great team spirit. Actually, but we also to... knew we also knew when to stop and when to get ready for a game. Something occurs to me that um, I mean, you mentioned the US Cup in '92. Um, well, that was a, that was different. That, that was an end that, of season. That, that was, that was a, <laughs> now, did you meet this guy Frank Gillespie, who who Roy Keane had a oh, had an I, altercation with? I just found out about that. I actually curiously uh, curiously uh, enough the other day, I just found out it was Frank. Yeah. And that was literally two days ago. Yeah, I know Frank, yeah. And, and Frank, yeah, we, we spent many an hour in Frank's bar in Boston, yeah. Did you see the seeds of, of the future uh, difficulties with, with Roy Keane 20, 22 years ago? I mean, you mentioned the, you mentioned, you know, you'd seen things uh, in embryo, you know, when you were watching yeah. Saipan, you'd say, well, this doesn't surprise me altogether given what I saw in 94. Back in 92, did you see signs that maybe one day Frank Gillespie and Roy Keane were destined to clash? I, I, well, I certainly never... Saw uh, why and how uh, Frank and, and 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 Roy would clash. Um, I certainly know Frank, and he's he's a he's a softly spoken guy, very enthusiastic, uh, and has been uh, following the team for years and years. Now, I believe, and I didn't realise this, he'd written a book as well. I think Tales from the Blackthorn or something. And I, I was unaware of the book as well, so I don't know what was said uh, within that book because I haven't read it. And obviously, Roy seems to have taken umbrage to something. And uh, yeah, obviously, I wasn't there in the hotel. But uh, it was frank, and we did spend many an hour in there, and we did pour our own pints. And that particularly was on the back end of that 1992 US Cup competition, which was a free-for-all, really, if I'm honest. It was end of season. It, it was a tournament that uh, wasn't a, obviously a major tournament, but it was a tournament that the lads went and let their hair down, and we played golf, and we played football, and we drunk. And, and and we made merriment, and most of it was in 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 Frank's pub. Alan, one other little nugget in here that we, we quite enjoyed is that um, Noel Gallagher wasn't particularly gifted musically at school. Well, he, he showed no signs to me anyway, because we were in the same class um, together, and uh, we had the same music teacher. And yeah, there was no signs. I mean, I was I for my O level at the time, I played Three Blind Mice, and uh, the teacher wasn't too happy after two years. My rendition was Three Blind Mice, so I can't remember what what Noel particularly played or, or had to play but it was probably nothing significant and uh, yeah we were in school together uh, we were a year in the same class together and then we was in the same year but split classes I went to a different class he, he stayed in the same one but uh, yeah I didn't really Noel wasn't what I'd call you know a close friend at school Noel was someone that was hello how are you and we met at the football matches and we he would go in uh, and I would meet at Main Road and we'd walk in and there'd be a group of three or four of us or two of us or, you know, four or five. So it was a group of people that would meet particularly at the games and that's where, and then we'd see each other in school and then we might see each other at the game again. But not real big mates at school, but I had a mutual admiration. I, I then met Noel uh, many, many years later when I was playing for Portsmouth against Man City and he was the height of Oasis then and he came onto the pitch at Main Road and, he ran over and actually jumped on me and gave me a big bear hug and asked how I was and invited me upstairs to his uh, private box he had. But I didn't didn't take the offer. And I probably regret it now a little bit that I didn't go up and 
sort of like not mix there, but just sort of like say hello. And- oh, yeah. When you're invited into Oasis's um, uh, corporate section, I think you go in. What, you didn't what? want to seem busy is the word you use. What, what do you mean? Well, I, well, I didn't want to jump onto the bandwagon of just because now he was a huge superstar that I was going to go up and try and gate crash that and, and I just wanted, I don't know, I just declined the offer because that's the type of person I am. I'd, unless Noel um, had seen me again at a game, probably further down the line, uh, and maybe then seek me out and said, hello, Alan, listen, why didn't you come in? I didn't want to go up and just, you know, be a be a part of something that, you know, might only be for a, a couple of hours or an hour. So, uh, you know, that's where I am with it, really. I'm, I'm pretty sure I could get a hold of Noel because I know he does a little bit of work with a station in, uh, in England, TalkSport, and he, he speaks quite frequently on air, and I know the guest presenters. And maybe I could get hold of him in some way, but I've got, you know, as a mutual respect for him. His music is wonderful, and I'm actually a massive, huge fan and have all his work that he's done, and I'm proud of what he's achieved. From two lads from the same school in Manchester, from the same class, you know, he, he's gone on to be a mega superstar in, in the music industry, and, and hopefully I've managed to graft out a good career for myself and retire when I was 35, uh, proud of what I've achieved. So, yeah, I didn't want to be busy, and I'm not that type of person uh, that I'm going to go and, you know, turn up, you know, with my best gear on, hoping to get into Noel Gallagher's uh, crew, if that makes sense. And uh, I was quite happy with my lot, and I was more than happy that he actually came over and jumped on me and said hello and gave me a hug. So that that made my day more than anything, yep. and actually turned down quite a bit of money to spill the beans on him, actually, from the, the press in England. <laughs> You, you ter- did you? They, so you were offered, well, you were to- yeah, asked, did you want to do a hatchet been, job? Obviously, uh, there was lots of sports journalists at the game, and uh, there was a, uh, you know, uh, the game finished 2 all uh, against Man City, opening game of the season, and most of the questions I had to fend off at the end of the game were about, why did Noel Gallagher jump on me? So, uh, and then obviously I explained we were, we were at school, uh, we were at school together, and I knew him uh, in some capacity. Uh, I had tabloids then, then the following week phoning me up and offering me money to you know, listen, they're at the height of their yeah. uh, their stardom then, and they needed any nugget of information about what he was like, and uh, again, I turned it down. Yeah, he wasn't great at maths or something. You should have just given him some sort of uh, an innocuous, innocuous story back. I'm sure he's great counties money at the minute. So <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Listen, Alan, it's great to talk to you. Good luck with the book, and most importantly, good luck with your next scan as well. It's, um, it's great to hear from you. The book's also available on Kindle if anyone's interested. Perfect, a different shade of green, the Alan McLaughlin story. Alan, take care. Thanks a million. No problem, thank you. Hair dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a various blasts of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. I was that he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. I really enjoyed that chat. I hope you, you did too. And we uh, we wish Alan well there. Um, it's nice one to... Just people write things in a book sometimes and they don't necessarily uh, follow up in interviews by being as, as candid and open on, on all of the, the serious parts of it. But we touched on it in the interview as well, Ken, the slightly lighter side to his story there. And this book does add to the canon of literature devoted to the japes and hijinks of Jack Charlton's boys. Yeah, look, you know, it, it's it's kind of one of those classic storylines of uh, everything seems great to start with and then just the, the, the crack just becomes so overwhelming. You get this kind of crack, Goddardemerung, uh, which to which the Ireland under Jack Charlton team unfortunately succumbed. The uh, I mean the, the US ninety four was obviously no bunch of Irishmen has ever had more crack than the Irish team and the uh, thousands of Irish supporters who were there. Mm-hmm. I mean at one point Alan McLaughlin 
uh, was in a TGI Fridays with the with the team. They'd been to Mickey, you know, Mickey Mouse's Magic Kingdom or whatever, and had their had their photograph <laughs> taken with Goofy the dog, and Important stuff, yeah. they were all wearing Spock ears and sort of even the three amigos. They went to they went to a joke shop and bought a load of earrings and uh, stuck all the earrings on because Jack Charlton hated earrings, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they, then he said, "Get those bloody earrings off!" And they did. They were, oh, sorry, Jack. But they, they were in the CGI Fridays and Adam McGuckin um, went to the bathroom, but he left his camera on the phone. Uh, his camera on the phone. His camera on the table. Okay. He didn't have camera phones then. He had camera. Um, cam- the kind of camera where if you took pictures, you didn't have to go and have them developed. So when Adam McLaughlin's wife went to have the pictures developed um, in the local shopping center or whatever a month later, um, she went back to pick up her photos and the the woman in the sort of camera... Uh, film development place said, these are your photos, are they? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she then had to look through. And the photos uh, were essentially a set of penises. Oh. Oh. A set of penises uh, <laughs> from the from the Irish team. Right. Which, uh, I mean, you know... It, Unidentifiable, I, I would assume. It's well, no, that's a, the thing. He says, the thing is, the sad thing is, I was pretty much able to identify which penis belonged to, which member belonged to which squad member. Uh, as Alan McLaughlin said, his wife, of course, mortified. I didn't take these photos. I don't know what happened. Uh, but McLaughlin, oh, those lads. A different shade of green for more of those stories. The, it went to, I mean, the, uh, well, no, that's I enough. That's there's enough. one other thing I want to mention. Oh, no. I didn't realize that the Harry Robinson challenge, which is famous. Ah, we've heard about that in other books. I didn't realize it took place at half 11 in the morning. <laughs> You've got to get your fish intake in at some stage. They, they've been drinking for like four days. They went to, it was just after the Liechtenstein nil nil. They, they, after the Liechtenstein nil nil, they went drinking. And then they were drinking for the next four days. Jack Child went off in an earner, left his son yeah. in charge. You know, John Charlton, lovely man, but no experience in the highest level of the game. So he said, all right, lads, you know, let's, let's get some training. Let's, let's get training here. And the player's like, ah, forget it. We've been drinking for four days. We don't care what you say. You aren't even the manager. <laughs> Where is the manager, by the way? You know, we've just eaten. And then they went and ate themselves almost to death. with the, And then it turns out they lose the Austria game as well. It was things just crack again on, at that, that stage. That's pretty much it. And I mentioned in the first show today that we had some great news this week. This Irish Times Second Captain's podcast has been named Podcast of the Year by iTunes. So a huge thanks for all the support since we started up. And we'll talk to you again early next week. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks again. Take care. We'll chat to you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.